0: My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stay on the reading of God's word? Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 and it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us and teach us what it means to see the beauty of your timing and more importantly, the beauty of who you are. That we would live in ways that, that reflect that beauty that you have shown. That we would live out the ways in our lives of all your great goodness and grace. And that we'd show this world, who you are, by how we live, because we are so enamored with who you are and what you have done. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm going to warn you just up front, uh, this week I didn't have the best of weeks, (laughs) and uh, the week I wrote this apparently didn't have the best of weeks either, so I hope it doesn't come out in what you hear. Uh, I feel like sometimes my life is a little like how Solomon talks about it. It's too hard, too busy, and like I am riding a stationary bike for all I'm worth, only to get off and realize I haven't gotten anywhere, I'm just a lot more tired. So that's kind of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Today is week eight in that sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. It really is one of the most philosophical books in the Old Testament, and we are going to be kind of philosophical today. Uh, There's a lot of people I've told you that don't know what to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. Like one commentator was asked to. Question, he didn't know how to answer it out of Ecclesiastes, so his response was, It's just not an inspired book. And I believe it is an inspired book. I think that Ecclesiastes is really good for us as Americans because we are always looking at the duality of the world in which we live. And that is over time, our view always t- tends to come into competition with God's view of the world. And our view of the world is always temporary. Solomon calls it under the sun. Uh, a lot of things we get ourselves involved in are meaningless. And Solomon is trying to juxtapose that with God's eternal view, an objective view of everything. And that's kind of the idea of the duality of Ecclesiastes, man's view versus God's view. And I know we almost never see this in in our lives, this idea of our view versus God's view, because who we are tends to cloud everything we see. So by the end of this message, I want to get to a point where I help you to understand what I think a Christian really is or or can be, versus what just a religious person is. Uh, Immanuel Kant was a philosopher who was born in 1724. Uh, He died in 1804. He is very in vogue today uh, with a lot of people who are hip. you got a lot of colleges that like talking about him. Now he partly taught that if you enjoyed something, you would lessen its virtue. Like, uh, as an example, I I love my wife. But if I just enjoyed being with her and loved her, that would somehow lessen the relationship that we have. For in his mind it would be better if somehow I didn't like her and I just stayed with her because I was committed to her and that would make everything a lot better in his view. Uh, again, there's a lot of people today who who love him, but a lot of his views are just plain and simple dumb. Okay, They, they really are. But this idea has also crept into Christianity. That we're somehow supposed to deplore our existence. We're not supposed to enjoy the things that God has given us. We're not supposed to find joy in the things He has placed in our hands. And if you like Immanuel Kant, you probably need a hug. So there's your virtual hug. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, it's a great book to read during the book of Ecclesiastes if you haven't ever read it. He writes this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds the desires not too strong, but too weak." See, so God, according to C.S. Lewis, doesn't look at us and go, I can't believe they're enjoying those things that I gave them. He says, God is like, they're not seeking hard enough or all the pleasures they're running after are ones that are too small than what I created them for. And then C.S. Lewis has this great quote, which I've given to you before. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday Day at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this is the difference of what we think will fulfill us under the sun and all the things that we chase after versus what God says actually is going to fulfill us as a people. Uh, God is meant to be our highest joy. But typically what we do is we relegate Him to this cosmic killjoy who wants to take away all of our fun. And if you ask a lot of people what they think about God, a lot of times they will say, well, I don't really like Him. And you say, why? And they say, because of pain and evil and injustice in the world. I have never heard somebody when you say... What do you think about God? And they say, well, I don't like him. Why? Oh, because there's too much goodness in the world. There's too much pleasure. There's too many good things around us. It's like nobody ever says that. But the thing is, there is so much good and beauty and pleasure that God has brought to us. The problem is we focus on it always to our own detriment. And it's, it's kind of like our view of pleasure and God's view of pleasure is so vastly different. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And again, I hope I don't lose you in stuff we go through today. Uh, here, Solomon starts talking about what he's talked about in chapter 2, these ideas of pleasure. And then he goes into chapter 3 and talks about how there's a season for everything under the sun. He shows God's sovereignty and God's goodness in the midst of this. And then he goes and talks about work and pleasure and brings us all together. So... Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 9, and stay there because I'm going to read some stuff and then we're going to talk and then come back, so we'll keep staying in Ecclesiastes 3 because I'm going to keep jumping back to that. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He makes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So he starts off and he's like, you know, what what do I get the return of all my labor? He sounds like an American, I know. Uh, but But he talks about, is it all worth it? is it all worth it? Too many people think that Solomon's answer when he says this is going to be, no, it's not worth it, that everything is just meaningless. But Solomon goes to this place that's just this beautiful idea of what God is doing, and he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. It's that here he is not resenting God. He's not looking at God saying, how dare you? He sees the beauty of God's sovereignty. He sees what God is doing in his times and his season, that God does all things at the right time in the right way, and that That means God has beautiful timing in everything. Now the word beauty it's first and foremost a visual term Uh, like in Job uh, 42 verse 15 it says that Job's daughters were beautiful and and you can take that even farther though because this word means a whole lot more. In this context it means good and right and pleasing and appropriate and pleasurable. God is said to have beautiful, pleasurable timing in whatever He does. Now we tend to be a people who don't trust God for His timing of pleasurable things that we want in our lives. We think we know what real pleasure is, and so we run out and seek it to our own destruction. So Solomon says, "...he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning... To the end. It's that we are a people who have eternity placed within us. We long for eternity and when we seek pleasure away from God we are doing is finding meaninglessness because it's not based in eternity and deep inside we all know we were made for eternity. We can feel it and we know this because this is how products are typically advertised to us today. Like as an example, there are some shops and they sell very high-end merchandise like Coach and Gucci and you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. So two of you, no. Coach and Gucci, very high, it costs a lot. So they went to one of these places who sells a a sweater for about 20 times what a normal sweater would sell for anywhere else. And they asked the manager, your sweaters are 20 times more expensive than other sweaters. Are your sweaters really 20 times better? And the answer was, we sell dreams. That's the answer. He says, when you see one of our boutiques and you go in and you buy lipstick or you buy this or that, it has the dream in it. Now, philosophically, and I don't want to lose you, this is what we call subjective meaning. Subjective meaning in our society means we live for ourselves. We don't have anything bigger than ourselves to live for, so there's no objective meaning. So what we do is we find things and we assign value to those things. And then we go and buy those things that we have assigned value to and get those things. And we expect to find our meaning in that thing that we have to assign meaning 2. Does that make sense? Okay, so we so we ha- oh I just have to have the Audi, right? And the Audis are great. If I have an Audi, I told you so you get an Audi and you take it home and I'm sorry if this is you this isn't Meant towards anybody. And you take it home, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, a couple months, a couple years later, you're like, oh my goodness, I got the idea. That thing you thought was going to fulfill you doesn't because you place subjective meaning on it and tried to get your purpose out of the thing you placed your meaning upon. You're not dying for a nation or any God. It means we see our lives as being meaningless, so we manufacture meaning, place it on things, and then try and get meaning back. In the Old Testament, they would talk about this as building an idol. Uh, god talks one time to these people and he says, you're dumb. He goes, you go and you chop down a tree. Out of half of it, you make firewood. Out of the other half, you carve an idol, and you fall down and worship it. It's dumb. Why do you do that? And so this guy's sweaters, they're probably very comfortable. Not that I would know, because all my clothes come off the clearance rack. I mean, this shirt did. You can probably tell. Uh, but there's but there's something much different and deeper. It's buying pleasure in a thing. Trying to attain worth out of a thing. And I think this is why our culture is the way it is. Our culture, if you don't, haven't noticed this, we make everything today about sex. Like, you can't just have a really good friendship with someone. You can't just have feelings of closeness with someone. It has to become sexual, because we find our meaning derived from the pleasure of this thing. We get worth and satisfaction and purpose, but we really don't in the end, because in the end we end up becoming depressed because the relationship didn't make us feel like it should have after a few years. All of a sudden it becomes hard and difficult, and we got to work through things. And why didn't this make you feel so much better? Because it's all subjective meaning. And in our culture, sex is not just about sex, no matter what TV shows or movies want to tell you. And I'll tell you, music is not just about music. And art is not just about art. And careers are not just about careers. This sweater guy says, you buy the sweater so you know my life is worthwhile because our sweater gives you meaning. And that's dumb. And yet we all do it to some degree. Our culture today is so frenzied about this idea of pleasure. Now every society has had pleasures but I don't think anyone's really got to the point where America is right now where we find all of our value in it. I think maybe the Greco-Roman world did when they got towards the end but it's like Solomon said they had lost their ability to believe in any objective meaning that God can step in and say this is who you are. I am laying truth upon you. We stop listening to that and only look for our own subjective meaning. And so people turn to pleasure not for pleasure they turn to it for a sense of worthwhileness for subjective meaning. Are you following? Okay, good. This is going to be a little more serious message today by the way. Uh, When this is pointed out most people think other people do that but I would never do that myself. That's why one of my favorite questions that comes out of the redemption group when we do RG ministry at, at Element is this question was if you got to heaven and you got everything you ever wanted whether it be love, family, meaning, all of that but Jesus wasn't there would you be okay with it? Because that's how most people view heaven anyway. We view heaven as all the things that we ever wanted, and Jesus is just the vehicle to get us there to our pleasure, to get us there to the thing that we really want. And so we're using him to get us the thing that we think we really want, and we may not even realize it. And when you ask people that question, they say, oh, I really want Jesus there, but do we really? Do we Really. Most of us are going down a path where pleasure is our bottom line. It's the main thing we're living for, but we hide it from ourselves. And one of the beautiful things in the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon is trying to reveal this to us. He's trying to say, this is what I did in my life. And he seems to be one of the only people who are honest enough to admit it. See, if you're going down a path and you know that path feels empty, why instead of saying there's something wrong you know, with the path, do we have a tendency to say, well, it's only because I haven't gone far enough. I just need more of this thing. What I mean is, instead of realizing the direction that we have been going typically in our lives is a bogus direction, we tend to double down and think we just need more. Like, if I could just buy a second house on the lake, well, then I would feel more fulfilled in my life. If I could just have a better love life. If I could have better kids, or no kids, or kids at all, wherever it is. Uh, For anorexics, if I could just lose more weight when it's killing you. And it's like, I just have to go farther down that path. For addicts. You know, if I just need one more fix, I just got to get it. It's not the path that's wrong. It's that I haven't gotten enough yet for people who overeat. It's the idea of finding comfort there. I just need more of that. That's going to solve my problem. We think the emptiness is because we haven't gotten enough of the thing that we're trying to satisfy our lives with. It's the path we refuse to leave. Solomon depicts himself as the greatest of the .0001% who could do whatever he wanted to do to satisfy any sensory pleasure. And he says, in the end of it, it's all a failure. And this still happens all the time today. You look at the people, read biographies or interviews of the ones who we perceive who have made it. They get to the place in their life where they have everything they wanted, and what do they do? They're not fulfilled. They're not satisfied. So they go looking for something else. Uh, I, th- I call this the Madonna syndrome because every time you turn around, Madonna's <laughs> running towards something else. No, it's this. No, it's Kabbalah. No, it's this. And she's always running towards something else. It's a powerful argument for the fact that striving for pleasure ultimately fails us. Not that it fails to deliver sexual ecstasy or release. Not that it fails to deliver like a neurological rhythm in your brain. Not that it fails to deliver comfort of a nice sweater, you know, like that. But but it fails to deliver this thing of worthwhileness. That's what it fails to. It fails because it's not really giving us what we really need deep in our hearts and in our souls. And what we need in the philosophical word, again, is objective meaning. It's this word called transcendence. Transcendence. Now, transcendence can mean wholeness. Uh, one dictionary definition says a state of grace. What we're trying to do is do an end run around the fact that in our lives without Jesus in them, we really have nothing to live for. We have nothing solid. We have nothing we're sure of. This is why God comes in Solomon's vernacular from outside of under the sun to bring objective meaning into our lives so we can know the truth of who He is beyond the sun. And so this is why Solomon keeps going. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. The NIV uses the word happy there. It's like a pleasure word. And to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And so Solomon says, when you find your objective truth in what God has said over you, you can find pleasure in all these things, but that pleasure doesn't need to define you. It's God who first brings that thing. Now, sometimes we think the idea of happiness is so far beyond us as a people. And, like, I can't make myself happy. Well, we have a pretty good, doing a pretty good job at making ourselves miserable half the time. So how about we just flip it, right, and try and do the opposite of that? Like, instead of focusing on ourselves and running down the same path over and over, how about we begin to focus on who God is and what God has actually said over us? Like, things in our life may be bad because of decisions we have made or decisions other people have made and imposed on us, but is God still there? Yes, and one writer says one of the things we can begin to do in this is kind of go through your adult life like a like an Easter egg hunt, and you're looking for all the little things that God has placed out there, so you can be like, "Oh wow, God, look what you've done!" Pray that God would show you the tidbits. Like, here's an example: uh, a few years ago, my wife and I went to visit her family in New Hampshire. I had to come back a week early; she stayed about five to seven days more than I did. And it's when the airlines would actually fly into. Santa Maria, not, like, from Vegas, but actually from other places. And so she she flies into Santa Maria. I'm there. She she walks off the plane. I haven't seen her for about a week. And my heart just melts because I am so, I'm like, God, thank you for bringing her home to me. And I'm not a mushy guy, so it's not like I was in the airport going, (laughs) you know, it's not like that. But. But she gets off the plane, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, God! Thank you so much for bringing her back to me." Not that I find my meaning in her, and, and she was only in New Hampshire, not to war in Afghanistan or something. But but still, it was it was it was it was this deep movement. I felt God did something great and wonderful. And at those times, I want to take a mental snapshot because there will be times my wife and I don't get along so well, or maybe I'm irritated, and I don't want to lash out at her because I'm just having a bad day. And so I try to start taking these snapshots of the goodness of what God has done first. Not finding my meaning in my relationship with my wife, but finding my relationship in God. And then that then goes into all the rest that I do in my life. You take all these little snapshots. We begin to embrace God's good and the good things that he gave. Sometimes we are so busy regretting the past or thinking about the future, we stop living and forget the now. Looking at all the things that God is doing. Like, you ever get a green light and you're like, oh man, God, that was amazing. Thank you so much. You ever pull out of this parking lot and go to this light right over here? Got three lights in a row and every single one of them hate you. You get green, oh, stop, green, oh, stop. You ever pass through all three of those at once? Are you ever just like, sweet Jesus, right? It never happens. But also you're just like, oh, mental snapshot right there, God is good. So the next time you pull out that light and it makes you stop each time, you're not like, ah, I hate my life. It's like, God is good. God is good. There are times when he wants to teach you patience. So he makes you go through this intersection. And sometimes he's you know, it's it's the way to understand. And so you look at everything in your life. What's God doing? What's He saying? What's He bringing? And you take all those snapshots because, in that, we can laugh with others and cry with them because we're not focused just upon ourselves and our own little world, we're focused on what God is then doing. God's gift to man is that we can find much pleasure in our work. Uh, Toil is not always a negative word. We can learn to eat good food together and laugh together and, and eat with friends and eat a great dessert and then go fall asleep in a coma because God is still on His throne. And you don't have to be. You don't have to be in control of everything in the world because God is. That's what He's saying. And Solomon is trying to juxtapose in Ecclesiastes our subjective view of the world versus God's objective, eternal, transcendent view. Ecclesiastes 3.14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before Him. And the word fear there actually means reverence and awe and respect. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. I don't know if you understand what Solomon just said there, but do you think you have ever cried in vain or labored in vain or laughed in vain or read your Bible in vain or eaten a meal in vain? You never have. You never have. God in his eternal objective viewer is going to turn everything around to make it all have meaning. This is how all this fits with God makes everything beautiful in its time. God works out history. God has a plan. God knows the seasons that we get in our lives. They're all supposed to be like breadcrumbs that lead us all back to Him. And this view of seeing the world, more of how God sees the world, I think when we do that, we'll begin to be able to live in faith and trust of who He is. We can find joy despite our circumstances that we don't understand. Solomon says what we need to do is stop fighting God and simply respect Him. Like don't try to carve out your own existence apart from the rhythms that God is placing in it. Don't turn your feasting into gluttony or your drinking into drunkenness. Work in rhythm with God and your life will find satisfaction because it's found in who He is and not your subjective meaning you place on things around you. And so for three chapters, Solomon is trying to say: no matter how hard I, hard I tried to forget the idea that that subjective pleasure means nothing. God still kept coming through. God kept shining through. He kept bringing His truth to me. Uh, Tim Keller has this g- great quote, and I think it comes out of Lord of the Rings. Although he didn't say that, but in Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins is talking to Gandalf, and at the end of his life, and he's like, "I feel like I'm too little butter spread over too much bread." And uh, Tim, not that that means anything for the quote, but <laughs> Tim Keller, he, he writes this. He said, Trying to wipe out the lack of objective pleasure is like trying to butter too much bread with too little butter. You spread it, and by the time the knife gets to the end, there's no butter there. There wasn't enough butter, it just sunk in. This is Solomon saying, subjective pleasure fails. It's you, your life is an eternal piece of bread. And we're always trying to take all these subjective, temporary pleasures and spread it over our eternal piece of bread. And it never gets to the end because it's not enough. And we keep trying to find more of that butter, and yet that butter will never cover your eternal piece of bread, metaphorically speaking. Hope that makes sense. Uh, It's it's that whole idea. C.S. Lewis, again, has lots of things to say that relate to Ecclesiastes in that book, The Weight of Glory. And he he says, it's why every single one of us instinctively knows in our hearts that there is a God over us that is real and true and holy. Uh, Many times people who don't believe in God, they'll deny it while being very angry at Him and want to always fight against Him. It's very interesting. But he says, when we try to find beauty and pleasure apart from God, this is is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the books and the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them it was not in them it only came through them if they are mistaken for the thing itself they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers for they are not the thing itself they are only the scent of a fire we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard news from a country we have never yet visited He says our yearning in our hearts and our lives is for the person of Jesus. True meaning, objective truth, objective pleasure is like this music we are born remembering and yet we're trying to hear it in music now. There's a scent we are born remembering trying to smell it in a flower now. It's like Solomon seems to always go back to the people who have the best careers and the best houses and the best whatever, get to the end of the road to find out it is not what they hoped it would be. And so many of us continue to live in that illusion. We think, if only, if only, if only, if this pleasure was just enough, if that pleasure was just enough. Why are we always doing this? Because Solomon says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And instead of trusting him for that timing, we trust ourselves. He says that there are all sorts of beautiful things out there. Keller actually says this, if you want to know the definition of pleasure, it's beauty. And I think uh, even talking about beauty in that, the definition for true beauty is something becomes beautiful rather than instrumental, which is another philosophical thing I'll, I'll explain. It means that something is beautiful and it's pleasurable in itself just for itself. Like when I was in college, I took this music appreciation class. Maybe you did too because it was an easy A. So I, so, I, so I took it, uh, I studied music, uh, went to classical philharmonics to go and watch them and write reports about them. But as soon as the class was over, I never went back to a classical philharmonic again. Not that the music wasn't great, not that it wasn't nice and pleasurable and all that, but I never went back again because music and art is fine. But for me, it was just instrumental. It wasn't beautiful in itself. Now, if you went back to a classical philharmonic after the class was over, and it cost you money and you had to drive to it and you just went to it because it was beautiful, then it becomes something different. That's when something becomes beautiful. But there's a problem with humanity and that is these beautiful things that are out there, we set our hearts upon them and then they start to addict us and yet, at the same time they don't satisfy us. Solomon says, he has put eternity into man's heart. That is one of the most unique verses in the Bible. God has put endlessness in our hearts. And what it means is there is a desire for eternal beauty and that all the beauties that are here, if we set our hearts and our lives upon them, as C.S. Lewis said, they're going to disappoint us because they're only the scent of a flower that we haven't yet smelled. They're the echoes of a tune that we haven't really heard. There is a music that we're born remembering. And what that is, it's a relationship with God. It's a relationship with Jesus. Here's a verse written like an addict. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, just one thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now, a lot of people today, they claim to be Christians and they'll say things like, well, I believe in God. And you say, well, why? Well, because He's there. Okay, what do you do about it? Well, I go to church. uh, I obey all the commandments. Why? Because I ought to. Let me try and push you, I think, where Solomon is trying to push us all towards. Uh, I believe that people who are real Christians get to a point in their lives where our attitude towards pleasure and who God is becomes a little bit different. We enjoy the things that God has given us. We're not afraid of them, but they're also not the things that addict us either. So I'll paraphrase Keller and Lewis here. The difference between a Christian uh, whose life has been changed versus just a religious person is a religious person is someone who will find God useful. God is instrumental I want to go to heaven, therefore I will follow this God, and He will get me the thing I want. God is the vehicle to your A. Okay? Versus, I think, someone whose life has really been changed by Christ, because they come to a place where they find Him beautiful, objective truth, objective view that He has spoken over us. We obey Him just because of who He is. And we don't care in the end what happens to our lives, whether good or bad. We just love Him for the delight of who He is. People who find God instrumental, when things melt down in their lives and go awry, they say things like, well, God failed. That's because you have taken your subjective view of truth and placed it upon God and tried to get that truth back from Him, rather than having just an objective view of who He is and let Him be who He is. And when things come into your life, good or bad, you realize God can use all of those things to bring us to a place where we love and serve and honor Him more and more. I think religious people and Christians can and do share obedience. I think religious people and Christians both may be desperate for God. They may even have a reverence for God in their life. But the difference between a person who I think really starts to become this follower of Christ and just a religious person is a religious person finds God instrumental or useful. But a Christian is one who will find Him truly Beautiful, I think that's the difference. I think we come after him, we seek him, we obey him because of the beauty of just who he is. Now, I, I hope I haven't lost you. This is really kind of the most philosophical message I've done up to this point in Ecclesiastes. This is the one that took me the longest to write at this point, but I hope it makes sense. I think surrendering ourselves and our lives to follow Jesus should bring us to the place where we don't view God like a sweater, right? It's it's we're actually finding objective truth and beauty in who he is. We move into the realm of trusting the things that he's said and the things that he has done, who's revealed himself to be. He is the Lord of our lives, but also the song our hearts were tuned to sing for eternity. And this is why I love that the Bible also gives us the idea of the gospel in terms of beauty. Like we we are people who have made ourselves in the world ugly because of sin. How do we get saved from our sins? Isaiah 53 verse 2 says Jesus comes and He had no beauty that we should desire Him. He is the one who is the definition of beauty. He is the one who created everything. We are told that He holds all things in His hands, that everything is what it is because He is the one who makes it so. He is in control. And yet He comes and He dies on a cross in our place. Colossians 1.22 says He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and a reproach approach before Him. What he says is he has taken all of the ugliness and sin of who we are and he has placed beauty upon us and he is presenting us to God the Father that he gives us all the beauty that he is. This is where religion says obey God or he's going to get you. The gospel says that we are a people who made ourselves in the world ugly. And Jesus came to restore the beauty that we were meant to be. When we believe in him, we become beautiful. The gospel says, look at what he has done for us to return us to who we are meant to be. I believe that our hearts need to have an object of beauty. And I think until we believe that we are truly lost without Jesus, we're never going to find him beautiful. Until we understand that he is the one who is holding on to us. And I think, again, our hearts need an object of beauty. And, and until we have Christ as our object of beauty, we're never going to throw out the other ones that are holding on to us. I think the ones in our heart need to be displaced by a higher beauty, a greater beauty, and that is Jesus. And I think, in the end, that's what being a Christian really entails. We are a people who understand what God has done to rescue us, and it changes our view of who He is and the world around us. And and I and I don't think that when people first follow, they, they really because we have a lot of steps in our lives. I don't know if we're, we'll ever truly get there, but it's a difference of seeing God as instrumental versus Him as simply being beautiful in who He is and what He has done and His rescue and redemption of us. Because our God is so good, our God is so gracious. Our God just doesn't leave us in the ugly state that we are. Our God restores us to beauty. Because he is the one who has spoken beauty. He is the objective truth that our lives have always been looking for. And I think that we as a people must come to the place where we, instead of trying to find him instrumental, start to find him beautiful. Where our hearts melt before him. And we start to see all that he is doing and how that changes us and how our lives are lived in surrender of who he is as our Lord and King and God. This is one of the reasons I try to bring you guys to communion every single week. It's a reminder of what he has done to rescue. As you break that cracker, like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, uh, because this is his blood that represents his blood that was shed for you and me. And if we just looked at subjective truth, We would say Jesus shouldn't have to go to the cross to die for people. He shouldn't have to do that thing because we have a different view. I mean, everybody tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. But God knew this is the only way because He knows objective truth. This is what it takes to rescue us, to have our sins taken away, for Him to present us beautiful and blameless before the Father. And so at communion, we lay down all the places that we have been trying to find our meaning in stuff and things, and we simply start to listen to what He has said about us and what He calls us into. And we start to live lives that can bring great hope again because of what he has done to us and bringing us great hope. The man's going to come up as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe you're in a place today where either I thoroughly confused you with subjective and objective and transcendence and all this kind of stuff. Or maybe you're in a place today where it's like I have been trying to make Jesus instrumental I have been trying to use him as my vehicle to get me to this thing that I wanted. And you want someone to pray with you about that because maybe your view is beginning to change a little bit. I would encourage you to go and, and pray with them and talk with them about that. That it is, it is We stop listening to the lies that we tell ourselves because the lies we tell ourselves, you're not good enough, you're, you're never going to be good enough, those are just lies. We need to listen to the objective truth that God is speaking over us as his children, of him calling us into his family in his grace and his hope and his life again. We listen to the truth that he speaks because that is the truth. Uh, There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, There's food outside because it hasn't started raining again yet grab something to eat, uh, maybe take some sermon note questions and talk to one another about the idea of, of transcendence and, and objective truth and you know, maybe what things you have placed subjective meaning upon and then tried to get meaning out of that thing. Maybe if you're honest enough, talk about those things and then speak to one another about the objective truth of who God is and what he has done and the great grace of how he restores us to beauty again and how we can be a people who truly find him beautiful because again, as I said, our God is good. And I think we as a people must trust ourselves to him because he is the one who has spoken truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you remind us of the great grace that you consistently bestow upon us. Father, I think all of us as a people run to so many things where we try and find our meaning in life out of this thing. I've got this job, or I took these classes, or I got this degree, or I bought this thing. I'm in a relationship with this person. Wh- whatever it is, we're always trying to find our subjective meaning in something that is not you. And when those things start to fall apart in our lives, many times we look at you and wonder why you are the one who have failed when it's not. It's just the temporary thing that has failed. And so I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you for objective truth. That we look at who you are and honor you for who you are and that we'd be a people who come to a place where we simply begin to find you beautiful. And that no matter what comes our way, we would know that you can use all times and seasons and all places under the sun to move us to a place where we live in deeper harmony with who you are. That we understand our salvation greater than we ever have before. And we would understand that it is your kindness and grace that leads us to all place of repentance in our lives. And that we would live out lives of great beauty because you have first bestowed it upon us. And that would change how we interact with everyone and everything around us. That everything would begin to change because we'd see you as you truly are. And these are the things we ask in your son's good name. Amen.